Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. You mean to wish me a good morning? What do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Please go away. Let me speak for the love of God. We can dance if we want to. We can leave your friends behind. Your friends won't dance. And if they don't dance, well, they're no, no friends, friends of mine. <laughs> Mate, were you a fan of Biodome? That's my question. Oh, who's not? Who? Who? I don't know anyone who wasn't a fan of Biodome. <laughs> That's when I first learned the difference between the Spider-Man theme song <laughs> and Iron Man. That sequence where the military play the safety dance to flush them out of the Biodome, but then they just come out of the bush dancing. <laughs> That's comedy gold in my in my mind. Hey, um, here's a piece of trivia for you. Did you know that it was originally believed for a long time that Biodome was created from a rejected script from Bill and Ted 3? No, I didn't. I was actually thought for a second you were going to say it was like Die Hard. It was the rejected script for Commando 3. (laughs) Well, there may still be some truth to this. Alex Winter, you know, from Bill and Ted, has recently come on the record to doubt that information, but he didn't dispute it. (laughs) He direct Biodome? <laughs> no, no, but like he would oh. know if the script was originally a Bill and Ted film. Right. He doesn't think so. Yeah. <laughs> Which he means it's probably him. true. Like it could have just been a submission to the studio and they went, no, we're not doing this. <laughs> no, it never got to the actors. It was not like, uh, no. well, we thought the script was shit, but Keanu loved it. So, <laughs> you know. So who knows? Bill and Ted 3 may have been Biodome. Well, I mean, that would have been, pr- that would have been awesome. <laughs> But I don't know how you work time travel into Biodome. Well, it just doesn't have to be time travel. Yeah. But can it be a Bill and Ted movie without time travel? Like, take away the phone box and it's not its not like Get Smart. Get Smart survives without the phone box. I don't know if Bill and Ted survives without the time travel. Hey, did Bogus Journey have time travel in it? That was just to heaven and hell, wasn't it? I guess it was. No, don't they? No, they don't go back in time. No, that's right. They, just, they go off into space and stuff and hang out with Station. And... Uh, then they they play uh, they play games with death. Therefore, it's totally doable. It's totally doable. I guess you're right. <laughs> but do they use the phone booth to get there? They must. Yeah, the, the yeah. phone booth is in all. Is them. it just because they do they damage the aerial? That's in, so no, that's in go, the first one. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Welcome to Good Movie Monday, the podcast presented by FakeChamp.net, home of the nerdy cinematic ramblings. It is a pleasure to be here with you for another week. My name is Glenn Cochran. I have a crush on Monica Bellucci. And opposite me is Ben Helwig, who has a crush on... Uh, Teresa Hill from Biodome. <laughs> it wouldn't be Alexandra Daddario. It would be Alexandra Daddario. I forgot that you asked me this question earlier and I just totally blanked. <laughs> yes, was, it is Alexandra Daddario. I was going to throw you under the bus with Maggie Smith. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have you seen the... Uh, what's that? There's that one where she plays the horny biddy. Uh, woman in a van. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Uh, the uh, the private the private life of um, Gene Brody, I think, is the one that you. You have yeah. picked a fun episode to listen to. Although we would hope that all of our episodes are fun episodes. There are two reasons to stick around for this one. Firstly, we will be featuring an exclusive interview with Clayton Jacobson, who is the writer and director of the cult Aussie film Kenny and the fantastic dark comedy Brothers Nests. He has an exciting new studio set up called Dream Screen, and we're going to be talking about that. And then there's the fact that this is our trivia episode. We've done it before. We're doing it again. We have lots of fun facts and did you knows for today. So I was going to say it actually is. A, it's a different kind of trivia episode because the other trivia episodes were us trying to stump each other. This one is more of a did you know episode. Yes, that's true. That is true, but it's trivia nonetheless. It's trivia nonetheless. It's trivial. <laughs> trivial trivia, if, if my list of trivia is anything to go by. And our friends are here for their weekly contributions. They need no introduction, but if you're new to the show, I'll introduce them. In a few minutes, we have your home entertainment update from Jarrett Gunn from Monster Fest. Then a little later on, Guillermo Troncoso will run you through some recent movie reviews from Screen Realm. Adam Ross from the Australian Film Critics Association will be looking at another five-star recommendation and the guys from Bonehead Weekly in Kentucky will throw some more trivia at ya. It's a fun one, so strap in because we're about to launch. All right, let's get the ball rolling with our first piece of trivia. Here's one for you, Ben. This is a twofer. Ooh. So when Kevin Costner's Waterworld flopped so spectacularly, the movie was dubbed by many as Kevin's Gate, which I love. But then a year later when The Postman was in production, the crew referred to that film as Dust World. <laughs> <laughs> Completely out of earshot from Costner himself, obviously. The thing is, I enjoy both those films thoroughly. I love them and I think they've they've appreciated with time. Yeah. I think the Waterworld flopped mainly because of just the, the production story. I mean, I don't I think with the amount of money they spent on it too, it couldn't help but flop. Yep. Yeah, it was just like it went. It was overblown, and then he was you know fired the director and all you know all that sort of stuff. A director he had worked successfully with several times. Yeah, strange. He's just got a different a different idea of where the film is going, I guess. But it's actually like, you know, like I, I think take out the action set pieces, which I can take or leave in movies. Really, like I, you know, don't get me wrong, I like a good action set piece, but I don't I don't think that's the movie. I think yeah. that's just the bits in between the stuff you actually kind For of sure. care about and I, I you know Waterworld is is great like it is like a it's not it's not um it's not a fistful of dollars but it is like a kind of you know a stranger in a strange land kind of well there is kind I, of movie you may want to fact check this piece of trivia in fact I insist you fact check this piece <laughs> of trivia but it was um believed that Waterworld began as a, an abandoned Mad Max script that makes it makes a lot of sense yeah I mean it is far superior to Mad Max Fury Road <laughs> Fast superior. I think that the concept of their the world being covered in water was just too far fetched for the time frame of Mad Max, like yeah. the, the the canon. Although it does make sense because if the if you know if if the current if the theory about global warming is true, what happens is that first everything heats up, yeah, and then everything gets true. flooded. True, true. You know, like that's exactly what happens. Like it is, yeah. It seems contradictory for the. You know why is the why are we in in uh, in jeopardy of flooding when the ozone layer is crumbling and Correct. temperatures are rising? Yeah, well, yeah. Because the polar ice caps will melt and then everything will disappear underwater. You know, everything everything about um, all of that, the fact that he drinks his own piss is all I remember. <laughs> it is a great scene. It's a great, and then and then I remember, 
I remember John Safran doing it on uh, <laughs> the great, the great, the great race or whatever it was on, on Channel Two. All right, hit us up with your first piece of trivia. Uh, see, mine's not as good as yours. I, like I had um, so Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, mm-hmm. written by uh, William Goldman, was actually originally called the Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy, but they swapped it around when Paul Newman, who at the time was the biggest movie star in the world, took the role of. Uh, of Butch Cassidy. Do you think the film would have been successful the other way around? I don't uh, look. It probably wouldn't have mattered. It but kind of rolls I think off your tongue. It does definitely it works. It does roll off a lot better as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as opposed to the Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy. <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, yeah, and and I, I couldn't tell you why. I said it's just the, the way the words sound. But yeah, it's, I always thought that was that was an interesting. And originally, the song was called um, "Falling on My Head, Raindrops." <laughs> Comma. <laughs> Falling on my head, comma, raindrops. That's right. I hope you're like taking... It's like a haiku. <laughs> I hope you're taking notes at home. This is inv- invaluable stuff we're giving you here. If ever you have to organise a trivia night, look no further. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the original title of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance? It's actually a pretty good, uh, like a Jeopardy question. <laughs> what is the Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy? Correct. <laughs> Well, when it comes to things being released on physical media, also look no further because Jarrett's got you covered. Hey, this is Jarrett and welcome to PE Class. Now, it's been a quiet couple of weeks for home entertainment, so you better be prepared for a deluge. And that's right, the distributors are going to hit you where it hurts, right in the fucking wallet. And uh, it's going to hurt bad because there's some good stuff coming out this week on home entertainment. Let's kick it off with Disney. They're releasing Soul on 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and DVD. Now, if you've got Disney Plus, you possibly already watched this as it dropped on the service around Christmas time. It was due to go theatrical, but then Disney made the decision globally to release it to Disney Plus, and not even as a premium film, just as a standard subscriber, you know, film. And it must have been a move to try and get those sub numbers up. In any case, it obviously worked because a lot of people have seen it and are raving about it. Not only great critical raves, but just good audience raves. And Disney are going to go to town on this home entertainment release. And I'm happy I waited because I'll be picking up the 4K Ultra HD. It is stacked with special features. It's got commentaries, deleted scenes, featurettes. It is completely loaded. There's some short films on there also. Then coming out from Roadshow, first to market anywhere in the world, they're releasing Super Intelligence. This is the Melissa McCarthy James Corden film that came out in cinemas here in Australia late last year in America it just went straight to HBO Max and this film I haven't seen and I don't know if it's a stinker but I know it sat on the shelf for a while because they were doing test screenings for the movie when I was in the States in 2017 then they were doing test screenings for it again in 2018 and then somehow it finally crawled out of a dark place in 2020 and headed straight to HBO Max any case Roadshow's dropped the ball and they're only releasing it on DVD if they'd released it on Blu-ray they probably could have made a lot of export sales but anyway it's coming out on DVD from them also coming out a film that debuted on HBO Max in the United States but then released theatrically here in Australia is Robertson Zemeckis' adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches. That's coming out on Blu-ray and DVD and the Blu-ray actually has special features like deleted scenes and featurettes on that. Then Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment will be releasing three quality titles, the first of which is Arch Enemy, a new feature from the director of Daniel Isn't Real, Adam Egypt Mortimer. Uh, and it's, it's, it's like an indie superhero film and it's quite good. Uh, it's sans special features unfortunately but that's okay because the US release only had like a you know an EPK on it so it's not a big deal then the other two releases coming out are Studio Canal titles also and they are from 4k restorations uh, they've been out on blu-ray before but they have not 
theme, the 4K restoration. So there's Breathless, the Jean-Luc Godard film, and then the Ealing comedy, A Lady Killers. Now, both of these titles have actually had 4K releases in the UK. However, they're only going to get Blu-ray locally, but they have only been released in like these deluxe editions in the UK where you've pretty much got to pay around about somewhere between 70 to 100 Australian dollars for them. So the fact that they're coming out on Blu-ray locally, I'm pretty happy with that. I mean, they're only going to cost you about 16 a piece and they're probably going to be in like everyone's, you know, JB Hi-Fi and Sanity's two for 30 before you know it. Anyway, the last release that's coming out is from Umbrella Entertainment. It's a theatrical feature they released in December of last year, and it's Roderick McKay's The Furnace. Now, this film received strong critical praise. It premiered at Venice uh, in October of last year. I haven't seen it, but I'm actually quite keen to check it out. And Umbrella have put special features on this one also, as well as releasing actually on DVD and Blu-ray, which is great. When an Australian film comes out on Blu-ray and it's a new release film, uh, that's always terrific. But there's a couple featurettes on there. And uh, that's it for me for this week. That's a stack of releases, and I'm only giving you the highlights too. So until next time, stay physical. Thank you, Jarrett. We're hoping that Jarrett will join us live at the desk sometime over the next few weeks. Um, so, you know, everyone just, you know, just bombard him with messages. Tell him he has to. He lives so far away from you, Glenn. <laughs> it's so far away from the studio, and he doesn't drive. It's about time that we started getting some of the guys on for a chinwag at the desk, I reckon. Yeah. Especially, I mean, like, let's get the Sydney siders down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've, I've put that, that invitation has been extended. Has yes. Anyway, on with the good stuff. We've got more useless information to unload on you. I've got one. All right. The original script for Clerks, Dante was supposed to die at the end of the movie. He wasn't even supposed to be there that day. Exactly. And that's the gag. So that version of the film had a robber shoot him. And then the title card comes up saying he wasn't even supposed to be there today. <laughs> I think that's a good ending. They never actually say, or do they, who the person who was supposed to be there that day was. Never revealed. I mean, uh, yeah, is it the owner? Or who was it? So who's he covering for? Or, I mean, I can't remember if there's something at the start. No, um, he, he's on the phone call, you know. Yeah. With he, that person, oh, no, because he comes in and opens the shop. He talks right? to the owner, I think, and the owner just doesn't the owner want him to stay the whole day. Yeah, what a movie! What a great story what, of an independent great film debut film. Yeah, yeah uh, incredible. You know, he went to the same film school I did in Canada at the Vancouver Film School, but he dropped out one semester in. Right, I didn't yeah, know that he and, went to film school at all. Yeah, he and he went back to Jersey after that. <laughs> Even though one semester has only lasted, the corridors of that school aligned with Kevin Smith. Yeah. <laughs> alumni Kevin Smith <laughs> with an honorary degree. Which I Kevin think Smith. I think like twenty years later he went back and completed you no know, honorarily. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well that's um who was it that I read that uh, got their degree? Um Steven Spielberg, Spielberg, yeah. Yeah. Thirty three years later. Uh Schindler's List is my graduation yeah, film. He handed yeah. in Schindler's List as his as his I wonder if he final though, film. I don't know if he can though. Like I don't know if you read like I know it, at least at Deacon it clearly states in your <laughs> enrollment to to well no any uni I'm just I just mean by yeah. any university but at Deakin it does say that any work that you create there as a student is actually owned by the university and we had this trouble with Ray Bosley when we released Smoke Him If You Got Him yes we wanted to put some of his earlier shorts in there yeah. and we had to get approval from RMIT and Swinburne mm -hmm. to include them because technically as even though they were homework created by him mm -hmm. they're owned by the, yep. the university so does now there's a uh, Cal Arts or SoCal or wherever Spielberg went, do they own Schindler's List? Now? Well, I learned that lesson all too well when um, I was at RMIT and I lost all of my student films to them. Right. Yeah, haven't been able to get them back. 
I'm surprised they don't uh, let you have access. Like, a... yeah, well, I just don't care about them anymore. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> but the people, the people that I was involved with back then have gone on to some big things. You got um. It's the guy, oh, I've forgotten his name, Scott Ryan. Scott Ryan went on to do The Magician and then Mr. Inbetween in America. He was sort of there and, you know, um, Jason Turley has gone on to do a few things and um, the, the obviously James Wan Lee were now were a year before me and they went on to huge things. Huge things. So it's just, I was in that crowd at the time. It was just a, I'd like to get them back for that reason, just to sort of see who might have been in there that I've forgotten. Yeah. Anyway, what's your next one? Uh, did you know that Psycho was the first American film to feature a flushing toilet? Yes, I did. <laughs> okay. Could you tell I got that one off a uh, movie trivia website? I'm like, oh, what else I get? That's uh, a great piece of, um, I mean, that's a shocking is, detail. I always thought it was 2001 A Space Odyssey. But I'm trying to think, does he actually, that's not an American film, I guess. It's a, it's a British film. But I'm pretty sure that he flushes the toilet in the... He goes to the toilet in the space station, but I could be wrong. It's like his shit get flushed out into... It's just, yeah, it's like a shitberg, like Joe... Like me, Joe Dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Floating through space, this giant shitberg. <laughs> that was probably in the... Uh, what's the, the 2001 Space Travesty? That was... Yeah. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen just gets chonked in the head with it. Yeah. Isn't that, that's what 2002... Or the, what's the sequel? No, 2010. 2010 is about. <laughs> yeah. It comes back... That's what the the dome. That's what the thing is. That, that, <laughs> the monolith. <laughs> monolith is just a shitberg. My God, it's full of turds. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, did you know? Just an added piece of trivia that Tom Hanks owns all the rights to the sequels to those books because he wanted to produce all of Arthur C. Clarke's two thousand stories. Right. Yeah. So there's two more to go, but and, um, I don't think we'll ever see that. I mean, yeah. Look, quite frankly. I'd rather see a sequel to uh, that thing you do, but yeah, you know. <laughs> that would not be a cheap um, property to purchase. I wouldn't have thought so for the for the possibility of never actually doing anything with them. Yeah, and it's not like it's just like the option where you go, here's a thousand dollars, just uh, yeah, just in case I can get something happening. Like he'd have to pay proper money because he also bought the rights to the City of Ember um, books, which uh, off the mic we were talking about earlier that they made one film with Bill Murray and um, Shersha Ronan and. Just never did the sequels. Uh, that's a, it's a funny one too. That that uh, that was uh, one of the first Blu-rays that we got in DVD collection when I managed it. And on the TV in the store there, <laughs> when you put a DVD, when you put a Blu-ray in, it comes up with the the TV would come up with the um, the quality, whatever it is. Yep. So it would say like five seventy p or whatever it is. Yep. And City of Ember on the back it says ten eighty p. You put that thing in and. <laughs> the uh, the logo of whoever produced it, Warner or yep. Universal or whoever it was, that's 1080p. The movie starts 720p, my <laughs> oh, friends. No. And you're like, oh, Jesus, they've really pulled the wool over some people's eyes with this piece of shit. <laughs> yes. It's a good film, though. I like that one. Books, I, I get, to be honest, I get it mixed up with Flushed Away, the cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> you're obsessed with flushing. I'm just, it's all about toilets. I just want it. It was just a callback. I haven't got the nanny in here, have you? A, I, you know, I worked on that. I worked on that callback, uh, like uh, all of two seconds in my head before I said it. I hope somebody out there appreciated my nanny Your gag. nanny joke. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, here's another one for you. Not really juicy though, but um, Shane Black. He wrote the script for The Last Boy Scout whilst on downtime shooting The Predator. Well, what else is he going to do? Mate, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I did say it was great like piece of trivia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
because I mean, like, you know, you often think, like, what are, what do the writers do on set? Like, sometimes they're punching dialogue up and stuff like that. But I've been on a couple of film sets, and the writers are like, they're. But he didn't write. He didn't write um, Predator. Shame. Oh no, that's right. He's just like he's just in it. Yeah, that's and he's right. not. A, he's a side character. Yeah, he gets. I, he's like the. Is he the first one killed? I think, I think he's the first think one. He's he, the one that gets skinned on the up in the trees, right? Yeah, and I believe he wrote all of his dirty jokes in that film because he says yeah. some pretty gross jokes in that film that are hilarious. <laughs> My one's as big as a house. <laughs> big as a house. Which he tried to recreate in his Predator film that he directed. Predators, yeah. Yeah, he tried to put that kind of stuff back in well, there. It's and it, it just It's that, not actually a Predator. It's that Predator. Uh, it's a bio freaking. No, no, no. What's, his, no, what's the joke in that? Like, they, they kill you. Technically, he's not a Predator. He's a hunter. He's a hunter. Yeah. <laughs> See what I mean? It just didn't float. I, look, I thoroughly enjoyed that film. Like, I love Fred Decker and uh, Shane Black. I feel I, really I, bad for Fred Decker because, like, you know, his career kind of took a nosedive after Robocop 3. He was never able to sort of build himself back up. This opportunity finally came along. It's a big opportunity and it tanks. I just, I, I, had, n- I had nothing but fun through that entire film. So, you know, there's a lot of people who were kind of like nitpicking it at stuff. And I'm like, oh, God, just, just, in- just sit back you and know, enjoy it. I was one. I nitpicked it at first, but then second viewing, like the value of the film came out. Yeah. I'm like, you know, this is a fun film. Yes, it's not. I mean, look, it's not on the same you know, level yeah. as the other Predator films. And the reality is, and I don't want to put myself down here, <laughs> but even, because I believe it was R-rated, is that right? At or one point, I think it got... R-rated or MA15+. It got plus. reduced to MA. But yeah. it is like an MA15+, plus. but it's actually for eight-year-olds. Yeah. It's for, it's for, or 10-year-olds who are watching something they're not really allowed to watch. But yeah. that's, yeah. that's who those movies, like Commando and, Commando and Predator and Terminator and stuff, like they're good films, but they're much... They're good films when you're 20 years old, but they're much better when you're 10 years old and half the stuff is going over your head, well, but it's just awesome to, your, to be watching Your point is proven. Too. So those films from the 80s, like your um, even your Die Hard, you've got your Commandos, all these sort of the R-rated ones, particularly Cobra, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Total Recall. People like us look back with such fondness of those films, but at the time we were only 9 or 10 when we watched yeah, them. Like, that's that's right. exactly your, you know, what you're saying. Um, yeah, look, you know, it's a fun movie. But it's, uh, it's your turn for a little bit of trivia. Uh, okay. Well, this one, this one, <laughs> well, this one's a fun one. I'm shocked that Christian Bale admitted to this, although I don't think he said it. I think it was the the director of um, the director of American Psycho said that Christian Bale developed his uh, the character's personality after watching a Tom Cruise interview with David Letterman. He said he was aggressively friendly with nothing behind the eyes. Mary Harron, and she Mary confirmed Harren. that. I interviewed her last year, and she right. confirmed that. Yeah, because I, I was interviewing her for the, the Charlie Says film. Yeah. And um, I had to go back and talk about, you know, this is another killer movie you made. And yeah, she talked all about the Christian Christian Bale stuff and where the inspiration yeah. came from. And Tom Cruise was definitely mentioned. It was definitely it. And you kind of, you look back and you're like, like that, you know, the, definitely the couch jumping stuff. But it's like, it's like watching someone who is now so far removed from normal people. They've transcended. That he's, it's now you're watching an actor pretend to be a normal person. Yeah. yeah. But then, like I heard, I did hear a pretty good interview with, um, uh, I can't remember his name, but the guy who wrote the game, prior to writing the game, he was a like a, a journalist for Variety and all that sort of stuff. Like that's what he was, he is still. Yeah. But he interviewed Tom Cruise. Maybe that's this is the opening chapter of the game, which is an embarrassing thing to admit that I've read. But uh, <laughs> he does talk about how, like when he interviewed Tom Cruise, like the, Tom Cruise 
makes friends on movie sets. Yeah. And stuff. Like he is a hundred percent dedicated to making movies and that's his whole life, but his whole life he's, he's still is Tom Cruise. Mm. So he, that's, he, that's his social circle. Yeah. That's how, and that's how, like as an adult, you make friends at work. Yeah. You don't really. Yeah. You know, well, or like as a kid, you make them at school. Like there's when he, a sporting thing, but you don't really like, otherwise you don't meet many other people. And mm. so that's, you know, Tom Cruise's kind of, Social circle when he's not making disciples. And so I guess when he's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when he's on like a talk show, like like David Letterman or something yeah. like that, like he can't relate. Like, yeah, because who is this guy? Like he doesn't know Dave. He thinks we all jump on couches like yeah. a maniac. What is he on Oprah? He he's couldn't like contain himself. Beavers and Butthead. I, just, sketch. I, I mean, I thought like the yeah, I think the reaction to that went a bit full on. Oh, it was, but it was it was meme worthy. That's why. Like it just yeah. it was that that clip that that ten second footage was just yeah. you know. It was a news cycle. I mean, it's the same as the Brit- Leave Britney Alone guy and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, Moments are captured. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're just and amused. exploited by snarky... Yeah, of course. Snarky people on the internet. Yeah. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. And that's where it all went wrong. Yeah. For the world. In National Treasure, all of the good guys use Google and all of the bad guys use, use Yahoo. <laughs> good that. That's a great... That's a great... Bi- I mean, so it's Sean Bean... I mean, I look. I would imagine that Sean Bean is someone who uses Yahoo in real life. Sean Bean, or, who must walk actually, up a mountain and not take a helicopter. helicopter that yeah. same Sean Bean. Actually, I would think that actually Sean Bean doesn't use Yahoo. Sean Bean's assistant uses Yahoo because I don't think Sean Bean goes anywhere near a computer. He uses a Nokia. <laughs> yeah, a non-smartphone. <laughs> He's got a beeper. Sean That's Bean right. is the beeper king of. How uh, many phones does he have? How many phones? There can be only one. There can be only one. <laughs> hundred percent. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that does not surprise me, but it's pretty good. Mm. What was the other one? Um, was it on aliens? All the androids are, um, they're all like a beast. They're all alphabetical. Like all of the, like David is the, is the last one. Right. Uh, Michael Fassbender is David. And before that, it's, I can't remember. The, yeah, the, no, no, you're right. You're right. Yep. Um, I can't remember who the Ian, what the Ian home character's name is in, a, in, in alien, in alien. Yep. Um, and then the, and, uh, Bishop in aliens and Damn. who's in, uh, is there, an, is it is lazy it, or clever? I, I don't even know. I, sometimes I think, is it even conscious? Like it's just <laughs> yeah. like a coincidence. <laughs> All right. Lay, lay another one on me. Uh, okay. So this is a, this is a, a good one. I like this one. Um, so Charles Bronson, mm. he met his wife, Jill Island on the set of the great escape. And at the time she was married to David McCallum. Uh, and he actually, he said, he told David McCallum, like, he was like, one day I'm going to marry her three years later. He wow. did. And they were together until she until she passed. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. She made a great escape. Yeah. <laughs> I think they I mean, because they had she had two kids with McCallum and a, and an adopted <clears throat> adopted daughter, I think. And then she had another two kids with Bronson. Yeah, right. Um but I I don't know if they nowhere on the internet could I find that, that <laughs> if did she have an affair with Bronson and that's why Split up with McCallum. Like I don't know if she wanted to have anything to do with him. What's this at internet the time. you talk of? <laughs> you got your information from the internet. I got. I get my Charles Bronson information from the internet. Uh, I, you know, I repeatedly tried to, to contact him in a seance, and uh, I actually found something on the internet popped up on my feed about his because yeah, 
he had you know he had a house in Los Angeles like all movie stars do, but he also had this massive kind of mansion in Vermont. Yep. Uh, and that was that in '94 or maybe 2004. It went up for sale. And it's got this. It's got like it's one of those you know places that have an indoor equestrian uh, <laughs> like you know, oval kind of with 20 stables and yep. all this kind of stuff. It's like this massive. That's where shootouts happen in movies. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It was actually a movie that that happens in um, the end of Wolf, is like it you know. Kane? <laughs> yeah, the um, uh, the Holcroft Covenant. Oh, I'd, he has yep. like there's there is like a the pot shot. He goes to visit this millionaire who lives in a who has like one of those indoor equestrian things, and the guy's riding his horse, and then people are taking Nazis mm-hmm. are taking pot shots at him. Dang. And that could have been they could have shot that at Charles Bronson's house. Yes, it could have in Vermont. Wow. All right, I've got another or one. Some, what's, another, what's another American state starting with V? I think it's Virginia. Could be Virginia. I don't <laughs> <laughs> it's not one of my facts. I've never written down. <laughs> on my memory. Hey, the actors that played Mickey and Minnie Mouse in the 80s and 90s were married in real life. Wow. Yes, so that's uh, Wayne Allwine and Russie Taylor. I always thought, oh, no, was, <laughs> I know, I thought it was Mickey Rooney, but Mickey Rooney was just the name. The, Mickey, the name and stuff was based on Mickey Rooney. That's even come up as a bit of can you know, whether or not that's true. You know, was his... it Mickey Rooney the one telling the yes, story? Yes, yeah. that's right. And apparently, you know, he I said was a that he star. Wow, yeah, you know, he world. said that he sat on Walt Disney's knee and Walt Disney asked, "What's your name, little boy?" And you know, Mickey, because Mickey Mouse was originally Mortimer Mouse, just for a bit of context there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Anyway. Steamboat Willie. Ste- yeah, that's right. He wasn't a Willie at all. He, he was, was a Mortimer. It was a Mortimer. It was a Morty. <laughs> it was a Morty. Morty Mouse. Hey, Morty. That's, that, that's got a good ring to it. Morty Mouse. Yeah. Should have stuck with it. Why not? Well, why don't you, you can take it now. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can just animate your own, like with Flash or something, some other outdated internet software. I'll get Nathan Armstrong onto it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. I mean, it'd be cancelled within five seconds, yeah. but it would be amazing uh, during that five seconds. All right, uh, one more from you. Uh, okay, yeah, did you know that in 1984, prior to his big break in uh, Bloodsport, mm-hmm. Van Damme was actually set to star in a, in a movie with Wing Wing? What? Yeah, but the, um, I can't remember the name of the other guy, but they had a, he had a falling out. The other guy was the, like Van Damme was not going to be the, the lead. Yeah. Um, but the other guy had a falling out with Wing Wing and they went their separate ways. And uh, the movie fell apart, so Van Damme was stuck, uh, you know, break dancing in uh, break dance two, Electric Boogaloo, and incredible stuff until uh, yeah, until he could uh, become a rising star in canon. With canon, that is uh, sadly the movie we will never see. We'll never see. I mean, it would have been amazing. Yes, oh, good old Wing Wing, Wing Wing, Wing Wing, and Van Damme, the the, the buddy <laughs> cop movie that had to happen. <laughs> amazing. All right, let's apply the brakes uh, just for a moment. We'll check in with Guillermo, whose uh, screen round, whose screen round update is a little bit different this week, on account of prevailing circumstances that have forced us to record this show well in advance. But you'd never know, would you? 
What's happening everybody, it's Guillermo here again from ScreenRealm.com, Australia's favorite entertainment website covering all things movies and television. Here to talk to you about two movies that Glenn has reviewed in the past couple of weeks and they absolutely suck. Uh, the movies, not his reviews. The first is the Mauritanian and Amazon Prime released true story that serves as a critical examination and condemnation of US government policy post September 11. Sounds like an Oscar attracting film doesn't it, but it just isn't. It stars Tahar Rahim, Jodie Foster, Shane Wood. Benedict Cumberbatch and it sucks according to Glenn this is the true story of a man who was detained in America's infamous Guantanamo Bay camp um, without charge for a total of 14 years it's downright outrageous and the film really should be showing that in some kind of respectful light that makes for great cinema it just doesn't work out that way according to Glenn a two stars out of five star review where he said, despite its important subject matter and reliable performances, the Mauritanian misses the mark thanks to a bland and uninspired production design and a disjointed collection of editorial styles. It was produced by the team who made the films United 93, The Green Zone and Captain Phillips, and perhaps what this film is missing, and those films each have, is the presence of director Paul Greengrass at the helm. I imagine he would have delivered a sucker punch of a film, Glenn says as opposed to a proverbial patchwork quilt that's frayed at the seams. The film is directed by Kevin MacDonald, whose name comes with a certain amount of prestige, having earned accolades from films such as Touching the Void, The Last King of Scotland, and State of Play. Unfortunately, two out of five stars for that film. If you're interested in seeing The Mauritanian, it will be streaming on Amazon Prime from March 24th. The next film that Glenn reviewed is another on paper sounding awesome film. It stars Army Hammer, Gary Oldman, Evangeline Lilly, who I know Glenn is a huge fan of, and it's another film inspired by true events. It tells three interconnecting stories set amidst America's opioid epidemic, so it's another uh, very important sounding topic ripe for cinema discussion, but nope, and I mean nope, it has half a star out of five by Glenn. This may be one of the worst, I, I just, I can't remember right now another film that had half a star. Maybe it was by Glenn as well. Glenn, you ruthless man, you. He wrote in his review, If you go into crisis anticipating another Sicario, be prepared to be sorely disappointed. You will need to lower your expectations exponentially. And when you reach the murky depths of a movie like Formula 51, yeah, keep heading south. There is little to no redeeming quality to this uninspired and, and insipid mess. It's a miracle that it hasn't been fast-tracked to the back end of a streaming service. Half a star out of five. You need to read that review. You need to read all our reviews. You need to go to ScreenRealm.com. Thanks so much uh, for having me. Uh, I'm out of here. See ya. You get line, I get old, honey. Sit on the bench, watch Cordax die, honey. Sugar baby, mine. You get lying, I get poor, honey. You get lying, I get poor, babe. You get lying, I get poor. We go down to that Cordax hole, honey. Sugar baby,
with a sack on his back, honey. Yonder come man with a sack on his back, baby. Yeah, yonder come man with a sack on his back and feet no gold as in that sack, oh honey. Sugar baby mine. Something a little bit folksy for you there. That was Crawdad by the Duck Down Pickers. You heard of them? No, I haven't even heard of... I don't know what a Crawdad is. <laughs> well, they are a Victorian folk band featuring none other than Clayton Jacobson, right. who we are about to hear from. Um, before that, a big thank you to Guillermo for finding an alternative way to deliver his segment. Visit ScreenRound.com and get behind what they do up there in Sydney. So, Ben, let's talk about Clayton for just a little moment. Um, you're no stranger to his work. Yeah, in fact, you were instrumental in getting a particular movie of uh, that he was involved with onto DVD, and we've spoken about it before. Do you want to talk about that for a moment? Uh, you're talking about Smoke Them If You Got I Them. I sure am. <laughs> I sure am. Yeah, well, because he went to um, he and, and Ray Bosley went to um, film school together. They did. And, uh, yeah, they made this... Oh, I don't know, but it's not a short, but it's not a... F- Feature. It's, a, it's about. It's a long short film. It's a long short film. It's forty-eight, fifty minutes long, and it's a end of the world, um, a kind of party that takes place at the end of the world just before a, a kind of a nuclear meltdown. And the film opens with, um, with uh, what's his name, John Flouse. Yes. John Flouse in bed, and t- like the alarm goes off, and the alarm turns on the radio and the radio basically says, uh, yeah, the world's about to it's like end. A countdown. And he kind of just like ignores it. <laughs> yeah. And then he looks out his window and Boom. the bomb yeah. hits. <laughs> it's a, it a wonderful, uh, wonderful film. I was so glad that you guys got that up and running onto the DVD format because to watch that on the big screen yeah. was something else. That was a really special night. Uh, and we talk a little bit about that. So I, I do also... Um, want to mention the fact that he had something to do with Houseboat Horror as well. He did indeed. He edited, he edited both films. And we talk about that too. So you're in for a treat here. Um, without further delay, here is my conversation with Clayton Jacobson. Clayton Jacobson, how are you going, mate? Uh, I'm very well. 
very well loving uh loving in, in just even just the two seconds that we've been on this thing i'm already madly in love with you any man that wears a hat and glasses as well as you do and a beard and mustache is a good friend of mine well i've been following your career so i thought i'd prepare for the, <laughs> the interview <laughs> well firstly thanks for kicking back mate i i'm a huge fan of yours and it's safe to say um, all of us here at Good Movie Monday are. And I mean, you're no stranger to the folks at Monster Pictures who are involved with this podcast. So Ben Helwig, who co-hosts the show with me, was instrumental in getting Smoke Em If You Got Em onto DVD. Mate, I was so rapt to hear that. Smoke Em If You Got Em is a, a, fa- a fabulous cult movie that um, my good mate Ray Bosley, we grew up together. We were, we were um, literally five doors away from each other and we found each other as filmmakers. We've known each other since we were two, basically. We went through film school together and he made this wonderful film. And uh, yeah, I was just so wrapped that, it, that um, they were able to give it the platform it deserves because it's, it's, it's a terrific movie. It is a wonderful film. I was there for the uh, the launch of it when um, they they presented it at Lido. I think it was. Um, yeah. Oh, okay, great, 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 great film. Because I think its original premiere was at the Capitol, and Ray right, yeah. Ray was great. He spent days, I think, sort of hanging things around the, the cinema's foyer and you know <laughs> skeletons and you know I think there was a skeleton riding a uh, a bomb or something in the foyer. He really you know <laughs> pulled out all the stops. Great. And of course, the other guy that's um, on the show with us is Jarrett Garn, who has done everything he can to get Houseboat Horror to a new audience. Oh God, Houseboat Horror! <laughs> Gee whiz, oh, I got yeah. sucked into a uh, into a panel <laughs> on that because that that's funny. Houseboat Horror for anyone that doesn't know is uh, is a a made made for video on video, literally the first video feature film made in this country by the the sadly departed and and uh, you know uh, ever dynamic um, Ollie Martin and um, that was one of the first films I worked on coming out of film school and oh man that film that that film uh, that, that film owes me owes me because uh, <laughs> I, I edited that film on weekends for about a year and a half and wow. it was it was just an, it was all cut on uh, a VHS editing system and uh, yeah it was a strange strange world that one but um, it has been funny watching how it sort of entered the the, the lexicon <laughs> of sort of Australian cult films because it is just so so bad. They look. The good news is they knew it was bad when they were doing it. You know, they no were doubt. acutely aware of it. You know, that shit crazy. And for people that are listening or even watching, um, you also, of course, made Kenny and Brothers Nest. And I think Brothers Nest is the very type of film we need more of in this country. Well, thank you. I look. You know, we uh, loved it. I, that's the most fun I've had working on any production wasn't just because my big buffalo headed brother was in it but it was it was a lot of fun we we went into a lot of trouble of it was also just one of those classic you know one location small cast you know mm. the classic sort of um you know uh rules of making a low budget film but um it was a really good script and it was um it was great fun i actually didn't want to be in it to be honest with shane i i wanted someone like angus you know uh, samson to play mm. the brother and i wanted to direct but my brother very uh cunningly sort of said look I, I won't do it if you don't play opposite me and I think he was intrinsically he clearly had some demons he wanted to uh <laughs> release and he was uh, wanting to <laughs> aim them squarely at me and not indirectly <laughs> through some other actor so I went okay I'll do it <laughs> I think the film is so much better off for you being in it and it's um you took it to places I was not expecting it to go so and and of course uh Kenny is my all-time favorite Australian film so Oh God, thank you. Uh, you know, again, another 
one of those fantastic moments that I wish we saw coming. We didn't. We thought we were mm. making a glorified home movie. And our hope was that it would go out on DVD and probably be embraced by plumbers and their families. And if we were lucky, <laughs> if I was lucky, filmmakers that understood that I was sort of screwing with the, um, the form, you know, I was yeah. trying to create a bit of a hybrid between observational documentary making and drama. And, um, and that was the in-joke for me. And, and also very earnestly wanting to make a portrait on, uh, on, on a riff on decency and a portrait of a man. Yeah. Uh, who really doesn't exist in the real world. I mean, we we do need validation in our lives, and he seems he is seemingly a human being that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think because that and uh, the Big Steel are my two favourite Australian films, and I think both of them sort of have that endearing quality that you know is rarely captured on film these days. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, yeah, a lot of it is based on a lot of Kenny is sort of a hybrid of my uncles. And the kind of world I knew growing up in the western suburbs of Melbourne, you know, mm. I was off. I was often watching films about Australian sort of you know uh, laconic characters, and they didn't feel like anyone I knew. They mm. they were they were the mindset and the work of you know upper middle class comedians that were you know for the most part looking down their nose, and you know we were laughing at them, not with them. And I was yeah. I always said to to um, Shane and my father, who's a great movie buff. If I ever get to make an Australian comedy about that world, I want to make it with all the love and affection that I have for for my uncles. And you know, they weren't particularly well educated, but by God, you could not pull the wool over their eyes. They had street smarts, mm. and they understood humanity in a way that was much, you know, that they had much more acumen to survive the world than than any. Uh, professor or any sort of you know academic yeah. that I, and I, I and I think up until that point most um working class characters on Australian film were knuckle men you know really sort of rough yeah the edges. yes yeah yeah but but how's this from from houseboat horror to dream screen like there, there's a <laughs> there's, there's a segue yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right and maybe I'm maybe I'm being naive but I, this feels like pioneering stuff to me can you describe what dream screen is to people and how it works yeah, well, Dream Screen is so uh, it's, it's sort of you know the technology has been getting a fair bit of press over the last year with um, the the likes of Mandalorian, you know, um, mm. and I say, I say that with with uh, biting my tongue slightly only because I have been playing with this technology for ten years. Um, I I first looked into this sort of thing back in two thousand and nine when I made a series called Morty Coots with my brother, and we did a deal with Ubisoft where we were using gaming backgrounds to create, you know, um, worlds that we could place actors in. And it was all, it was all predicated on the fact that I was doing ads at the time. And, um, and my son was playing an Xbox game and I was working on this commercial where we had a character shrunk, shrunken down onto a, onto a tabletop. And I wanted the camera to move a little bit. And the, the, those that were doing all the effects for me at the time said, come back in about three days time. And I went, okay, no worries. And I went home and there's my son moving around in a 3D space uh, in real time with his thumb. Mm. And I remember saying to my son as I walked past him, God, what I wouldn't give to put an actor in one of those, you know, and, yeah. um, and heard myself say it. Went, well, hang on, maybe I can, you know. And I was acutely aware that the, the image quality wasn't really up for the large screen or even a television, to be honest. So what I devised was the idea of epic storytelling on a small screen being YouTube, right? Mm. So, so we... we um, contacted Ubisoft they were into the idea but we didn't have any of the technology that we have now um, where we can track 
the camera in the background. I mean, tracking was around at that stage, but it wasn't available to us. Anyway, long story short, we did that. It sort of worked, didn't really have much take up. People weren't really that sort of taken by the, the, the approach we'd used. And foolishly, I, you know, YouTube really wasn't the place for it because it was a very sort of Mel Brooks sort of mm. sense of humor. And most of the people at that stage were 16 year olds on YouTube wanting to look at, you know, people just like themselves in a bedroom setting commenting on the world. So it kind of fell on, on deaf ears a little bit. Cut to 2019 and I've moved up to where I am now, which is out in the country and about six acres. And I've, I've turned a five car garage into a film studio, um, which isn't dream screen. It's my own little film studio that I do tests and things out of. Yep. And when I suddenly noticed that Unreal Engine was getting uh, infinitely better at creating good quality um, you know, uh, images, I thought maybe now's the time to, to try this again. So I brought, brought in the help of an LED company. We put a, a six meter screen in my studio and my son and I hacked into a Vive and into Unreal Engine and created what was the first iteration of Dream Screen. And I was blown away. It took us about three days to approximate something that you could actually work with. Yeah. And, um, we, um, we, we sort of we marked out a grid on the, on the ground and then we created a false grid in, an unre in, in, in Unreal and then we tried to match the two together. And when I could get the camera on set to be in sync with the grid, get the two grids to overlap each other, I knew that we were close. And, um, but I couldn't get anyone interested in this technology at the time, no one. And we couldn't find anyone in the world that was doing anything like it. Cut to about a year later and um, I was in LA doing some meetings and heard about the AR wall. And those guys need a plug because they were actually the ones that were pioneering this kind of technology long before um, the Mandalorian. Anyway, long story short, um, I put it to rest. I, I went back to making films and long comes the COVID. And I'm at, uh, it's March last year and I'm about to get on a plane to go to Bulgaria to start shooting a film. Uh, we had Guy Pierce attached and COVID hits and it sort of blows everything out of the water. And the question was asked, you know, can we do the film here now in Melbourne? And I said, no, uh, it's set in New York. Bulgaria had a, had a four blocks of, uh, you know, a Harlem setting, which we were going to use. Um, I would need something like this dream screen technology to make it work. And that got me thinking, well, if we're going to be locked in our homes for the next two or three years, this is actually the right kind of technology to get up and running. And then lo and behold, it started to sort of sprout up everywhere. It wasn't because mm. of me, it was just, you know, osmosis and, you know, zeitgeist just took hold. And, um, and uh, long story short, uh, I put about six months into gearing up all of the, um, the tech for it, got some investors involved, um, brought a number of very smart people in, created a couple of really great partnerships uh, with some very key people like Method Studios that did all the effects on Game of Thrones and what have you. And before we knew it, we were running tests with a 17 and a half meter screen that was five meters high and with a full LED roof and two four by four meter floating walls at Batman Studios in Coburg. Mm -hmm. And um, road testing and really trying to break the system to see what it can do and what it can't do. So what it is, what is it? It's a, it's basically a a new technology that is a new spin on the old technology of back projection, front projection. Mm. The only difference being that we can now track the actual camera and that data gets fed into Unreal Engine where there's a virtual camera in a virtual world 
and the two are completely uh, linked together and in sync. So everything your actual camera does, the virtual camera does in a false world, you then spit that false world image onto the screen that the actor is in front of, and lo and behold, you've got parallax. It looks like you're moving around, but that's not the end of it. The real joy of um, virtual production, particularly with LED screens, is that it's a four-fifths lighting solution. The camera's only ever looking at one-fifth of the screen. The other four-fifths are creating ambient light, which wraps around the, the character and really sells the idea that they're in that space. Absolutely. So I reckon you've, uh, you've probably answered about five of my questions all within that. <laughs> that, that. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, <laughs> I guess... You know, people that know your work up until this point probably wouldn't pe peg you for sort of a, a, a tech-savvy kind of person. Yeah. I wouldn't have. I mean, how, how far into this did you get before you were out of your depth and had to call a lot of other people in, or were you sort of on top of it the whole way? Well, I've always had a love for the magic of filmmaking. You know, um, from it was 2001 that started it. I saw that when I was nine years old. Um, it wasn't when the film was released, it was re-released at the cinemas and I saw it at the track cinema with Ray, Ray Bosley, um, who we were just talking about. And um, I was mesmerised by, by, by it and was fascinated in how it was made. And everything from Planet of the Apes to eventually Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, these kind of films, I, I became obsessed with how they made these films. And so uh, Ray Bosley and I, we bought ourselves a Super 8 camera when I was when I was about nine or ten, and we spent most of our teens recreating a lot of the scenes out of those films. So, you know, we <laughs> but we didn't have any of the tools. So we would make paper mache. You know, I made a paper mache and um, R2D2. We made a Millennium <laughs> Falcon. We blew them all up in our garage, <laughs> and we would point. We'd get our parents to drive their cars into the garage and turn on the high beams, and that was our lighting. You know, yeah. So there was always a bit of a hands-on love of filmmaking. I've always loved the guerrilla style of filmmaking. And I love those solutions that, and I've always invested in these, in the films I've done where, you know, even in Brother's Nest, you know, there are scenes in that where there are special effects that we did that if you had given them to a special effects supervisor, it would have cost you eight grand and they would have gone to a lot of trouble and they would have built all sorts of fancy ways of, of having this rig um but you know in my world it's like no that's a piece of cardboard with a hole in it um you <laughs> photocopy a bit of wallpaper um you know it's it's a simple um shot gaffered to a to a, a, a post you know th that's the way i've always thought but the other thing that's been saddled with that is my love of wanting to streamline filmmaking to put more control into the hands of directors you know, just that thing of the dream to the realization. I want to try and bring that time frame down from 10 years because that's an awful yeah. long time between waking up with a dream and seeing and having an audience watch it. And people will often say to me, are you disappointed that, you know, that film never got made? And I go, well, I'm not disappointed for myself. I've seen it. It's mm. just no one else has seen it. So um, <laughs> it's a long-winded way of answering your question. But the, the answer to your question is there's always been a, a love affair of that stuff. So, so when I first started thinking about Dream Screen, um, as I said, we, we'd already delved into it in, in, very certain, in certain sort of ad hoc ways. But I, I sort of did a very deep dive um, about eight months ago and literally spent every day in lockdown researching as much as I possibly could 
about the technology. And then when I felt that I had enough understanding of what was needed, like a little bit like I know I know how a crane works. I know how a Steadicam works. I know you know what 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 filters to use how to best use a camera um you know the the advantages and disadvantages of certain lightning styles but don't hand me a spanner and ask me to fix it you know, ask me to pull <laughs> the thing apart i can't do that so yeah. i got i certainly got to a point where i went okay now is the time to bring in the experts and i just wanted to have enough of the language so that when i started talking to them about this crazy idea that i had that they wouldn't just write me off as an idiot and um, and 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 thank God um, they didn't, and we were able to you know sort of corral a fantastic group of people that jumped on board. We had some great people working with us that that had worked on Star Wars, a couple of Star Wars films, and you know done a lot of really amazing films. But they loved it because they're used to being part of this monster that is the sort of the you know the the Unreal Engine sort of background crews that. You know, when you go and watch those films and there's this blanket of names that come up, you know, and you go, oh, my God, you know, um, they're used to being one of those kind of guys. But in our instance, they were of a real hero. You know, they were on set with the crew. They were on set with the cast. They were the master in command. We were looking behind the curtain seeing with the Wizard of Oz at play. And um, so we had some pretty smart guys sort of running the wall for us and, um, and helping us create some magic. So what has what have you been producing lately with it primarily? Is like have you had a chance to make many projects, or is it sort of just in that infancy beforehand and you're ready to go? Well, no, we're we're we are we are basically we're putting all of our energies into you know we really want to be um, the the uh, the you know the preeminent sort of facility here in in Victoria, and as such, we're building a studio that is uh, you know primarily set up just for that. So. We're in the we're in the thick of dealing with um, uh, you know cancel permits and um, planning permits and um, and uh, commercial real estate agents. We've found a location that we really love, and we're just in the throes of um, doing the final deals on that. And so we had to pull down the, the rig that we 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 had going, and uh, we're now going to set up in this new location. And if all goes well, we'll be up and running within about four weeks, and that'll be a larger volume than the one we had if all goes well so Fantastic. um yeah and um and uh, but really the the tests that we did in november were very thorough we you know we spent two weeks really putting it through a, a, a total battery of, of of the good bad and the ugly to see what it could and couldn't do and we were blown away by by just how um you really do feel like a little demigod when you're in this, you know, it's, it's like sort of walking into Cape Canaveral, you know, it's, it's just all these tables with computers and very smart people all staring up at the screen, waiting for something magical to happen. And, and it is, it is a very large television, you know, this is a, it's a 17 meter by five meter TV. And it, it, it really is, um, it really is, an, it's something to behold when you're in the studio, but more more when it's working well, um, it really is incredible, even to the eye. You know, you've got to keep reminding yourself this isn't real. This is a window to another world, you know. I, w I would love to see that in action. I don't know if you know, there's a thing called the Digital 25, and it, that's a list of um, 25 leading visionaries and pioneers as determined by the uh, Producers Guild of America and Variety magazine. Uh, I think directors like uh, Brett Leonard and uh, James Cameron are examples of some of yeah. those 25. Mate, if they revisit this list, surely you're a contender. Well, I think there are others that have been doing it before me. I mean, there there are some great volumes around the world. There's one in Munich that's really kicking kicking ass, and uh, 
Um, you know, the guys at ILM are doing a, a pretty amazing job. But, you know, the good news is we have been noticed by Epic. They have, they have, they are very, very um, excited by what we're doing and they have given us a, um, you know, they've given us access to their LA labs. And uh, so we're part of the Inner Sanctum there, which is fantastic. Um, so we're getting good support. And um, we're just in, we're wrapping up the last of our R and D, and then you know if all goes well, we'll be up and running within a month. So um, wow, you know, yeah. Well, if ever you, I guess if ever you do a sequel to Kenny, you'll those um, those, <laughs> those those crowd scenes will be much easier. <laughs> they will, they will, yeah. I, it's actually quite. It would be funny if the first thing we shot was actually a row of toilets. They would be, they would be, they would be very oh, apt. Yeah. Well, mate, this is this is exciting stuff. Um, good on you for sort of being on the front foot in Australia with it. People can visit dreamscreenaustralia.com or find you on the social medias, Facebook and whatnot, just to see how it works. The videos are incredible. Well, thank you. Yeah, we've, we're, we're trying to put up uh, enough stuff to sort of give people a window into it. It is a new technology. It does kind of baffle people. And in a weird sort of way, that's a backhanded compliment because the, the end results are very believable. Um, and so people do struggle to work out where the magic begins and ends. Um, and, and that's what's exciting about it. And I must say, with all of the... Um, there, are, there are new iterations to Unreal Engine that are coming out this year that will be a whole other ball game very exciting stuff that we're where it's sort of all heading and um you know that that idea of photo real uh realism is really going to come into its own i think in the next year so uh it is a great time to get into this space uh, particularly with covid and what have you you know it's it is very a very covid friendly um sort of technology but it's just you know it's a great it's a great toy you know it just you know it's it's and you know the one thing that there are a lot of things that you i didn't expect to come out of it, um, I, you know, Ray Bosley was um, came along, and uh, I actually threw him in front of the, the front of the lens on a couple of shots, and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, "You know, this is a terrific gift to writers," and I said, "Really?" He said, "Look, look you know, sky's the limit now. I mean, you really, this gives us as writers a chance to do things we we're not going to be as hemmed in by the restrictions that producers very, you know, logically have to, you know, enforce on a writer." when they're putting together a series or a feature film. Um, this technology does really give you the ability to do um, the unthinkable. It's incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Well, thanks for sharing that with us because, you know, a lot of people who listen to our show or watch these videos probably have no idea what it is if they're not <laughs> sort of on, on your Facebook. And it's just a massive, a massive thing for our local industry. So, and I think, you know, you deserve all the accolades you get. Oh, thank you so much, mate. I really appreciate it. Welcome to Bonehead Weekly Fun Size. We're going to lay some trivia on you today. Some stuff you may not have known. Some stuff that we're going to stump Glenn on. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I'll go first. Mine's a twofer. So behind me, you can see I've switched up from last season. This is the new set. <laughs> Thank you. He got the people. He got the people to come in and fix that. I got that the people. Post. I got the money. We did some upgrades. Dark Man's behind me. So this is a twofer about my favorite director, Sam Raimi. The first one's fairly simple. Most people know that Dark Man is a result of him never making what, Jane, uh, Chad? Chad's taking a drink. The James, Shadow. There you go. The Shadow. He always wanted to do The Shadow as a film. I didn't know. And then he went on to do Dark Man, which has a lot of hints of The Shadow. Correct, right. gentlemen? Exactly. Yep. I didn't know the second part. So when Tim Burton left Batman, did you know Sam Raimi was 
really, really, really tried to get the Batman gig? No. I didn't know that either. He tried really hard. In fact, he might have came close, but they ended up going with Joel Schumacher, which we all know. And I find it fascinating to think, what would have Sam Raimi's Batman looked like? I think we would have got Scarecrow soon. Yeah. Yeah, we probably would have. And we are getting, he is doing Doctor Strange into the multiverse of horror, whatever it's called, which I'm excited to see. And they announced today, Danny Elfman's doing the music. Yeah. All right. So um, there used to be somebody that was a power player in Hollywood, and uh, his name was Harvey Weinstein. And never heard of him. uh, He he got the opportunity to import a film by Hayao Miyazaki called Princess Minoki. He announced that to make it more marketable to an American audience, he was going to edit it, to which the director, Hayao Miyazaki, sent him a katana. With one message on it, no cuts. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. It's awesome. That's, that's up, right folks. up there with my Orson Welles one. You tell Ted Turner to keep his goddamn Crayolas away <laughs> from my film when he's talking about Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah, so if you've never seen that movie, imagine how it could have been cut by Harvey Weinstein, and now you know why it wasn't. I'm going to do a quick twofer. Um, so my first one is, uh, one of my favorite movies is Roger Rabbit. Um, Bob Hoskins was actually not their first pick to play Eddie Valiant. It was Bill Murray. And Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg mentioned that in an interview years later. And the reason they, uh, they, they couldn't cast Bill Murray is Bill Murray uses a phone service and they left a voicemail and Bill Murray never got it. And he actually didn't know about, he missed this opportunity until years later and it's actually one of his biggest regrets. My second one is a may or may not be true depending on who is telling the story. Steven Seagal's classic Out for Justice, they were shooting this movie. Steven Seagal was being a renowned dickhead, as he normally is. Um, And the stunt uh, director on that uh, piece of movie named uh, Gene LaBelle uh, was tired of his antics, and Steven Seagal kept bragging that he cannot be choked out, he cannot be hurt. So Gene LaBelle proved him wrong, got him in a chokehold, and Steven Seagal promptly shit himself. Hey! Can I, can I throw out one more quick one? Yep, make it quick. How do we know Ewoks are called Ewoks? Because it's never actually said in anywhere in Return of the Jedi. Watch it again. All right. That's been Bonehead Weekly Fun Size. There they go, doing their thing, being all American and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they have anything better to do? Uh, you can listen to the full-length Bonehead Weekly podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Go to their social media pages and like what they do. Um, and before you heard our conversation with Clayton Jacobson, who is not only a local legend but a damn nice guy, and he's promised to return to the show at a later date, so fingers crossed we can get him back at the desk sometime soon. And uh, you can catch the full video version of that conversation on YouTube and Facebook tomorrow. And then on Thursday night, we have a treat for you. We've got a special rapid fire video with Clayton and I having a bit of fun talking about all kinds of silly stuff. And now let's reel off some more fun and useless facts. Trivia. Yes. Um, let me just go through a list of celebrities that have killed people. Oh, fun, so, fun, fun. Yeah, Matthew Broderick. He um, famously got into an accident in Ireland when he was driving down the wrong side of the road and killed two people in an oncoming oncoming car. And I believe Jennifer Grey was in the car at the time because they were dating. She was. I always wondered, was was she... Traumatised? I was going to say, was she pleasuring him at the time? Is that why he wasn't paying attention to where he was going? That's scandalous. Scandalous. (laughs) 
John Houston also hit a woman with a car. Rebecca Gayhart hit uh, someone with a car. Mate, what I'm is it with these legends? I'm just going to <laughs> legends too. Or? William S. Burroughs shot his wife dead in a game of drunken William Tell. I thought it was. I thought. I thought it was the same as the um, Mark Spector thing, and that's where Mark Spector got the idea. Like, oh, he's just Phil clean- Spector. You mean Phil Spector? Sorry, he's yep. cleaning the gun, and it accidentally went off in her face. Well, he got like, after she had threatened me. Will, for William divorce. S. Burroughs got completely acquitted on the fact that it was a drunk game of William Tell, and both were participating. Right. Which is I interesting. That, uh, yeah, I just feel like it's like the Cliff Booth statement in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, anyone kills anyone by accident, <laughs> you go to jail. It's called manslaughter. <laughs> well, uh, Snoop Dogg, famous for his drive-by shooting, later acquitted. I didn't know the Snoop Dogg. Uh, I always just thought he was like the fun cousin of uh, the guys doing the drive-bys. I remember. No, he was on. He had a big murder trial back in the in the mid-90s. And when I first went to LA, I was with my family and we were doing the classic Hollywood tour. And we were driving past the Viper Room, you know, Johnny yeah. Depp's old nightclub where River Phoenix passed away. So they're giving us that information, you know, this is the Viper Room where, you know, River Phoenix famously passed away. Oh, geez, have a look to your left. That's Snoop Dogg, the potential murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like a loudspeaker and there's Snoop Dogg just walking down. <laughs> <laughs> And he was. He was just walking down the road. That was hilarious. It was. It was, it was because uh, it was way before Deliveroo <laughs> existed. Or menu log. Sorry, menu log. He couldn't. Uh, he had to go and get his own food. That's right. And of course, um, your Phil Spectres and your Robert Blakes. You know. Yeah. All right. What do you got next? Check this out, All man. Right. Did you know that porn star Ron Jeremy has a cameo in Ghostbusters? I did he's right at the end in the crowd? He's yeah. When when no, it's it's when um was it William Atherton uh shuts down the the power the things for the ghost containment unit and all the ghosts explode out. And he's of behind it. And, the barricade. And he's behind the barricade, just looking up. And you're like, uh, there's just uh, like, did you know that there are guys with huge dicks just wandering the streets? <laughs> it's like it's like that little sleazy cameo, you know, yeah. like you know Lloyd Kaufman He's... popped up in the Rocky and you know, yeah, <laughs> that kind of uh, that kind of thing. But he was because apparently that was like that is kind of always been Ron Jeremy's thing. Like he loves movies and he's always trying to get yeah. roles in them. Like he thinks he's like he wants to be a serious actor, and he's well, like it's been a, like a major disappointment his entire life that. You can only the, get into the... The real shame about Ron Jeremy is we can't really talk about him anymore. Uh, can't we? No, he's like life in prison or whatever. Ron Jeremy is. Yes, he's big rape allegations and his convictions and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, you might want to Google that one uh, after. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, there's a potential he's never coming out of jail. Right. Because he was always known as like the... The like fun he was, porn star. Well, no, but he was like... He was in a couple of documentaries and stuff I've seen. He was... Like they thought of him as the wealthiest porn star in the business because he saved all his money. Like he didn't live a life. He of carried excess. around with Safeway bags with his clothes and with them. his clothes and stuff. You know, but he also would do anything for a friend. Like there's a couple of porn actresses and stuff mm. who were arrested for drugs and stuff like that. And Ron was the one who would come down to the jail at two o'clock in the morning and bail them out. He was stuff, spoken but... highly of, and that's that's that yeah. is true. Um, but you know, I mean, in between edits, you might want to look that one up. There you go. <laughs> so once again, here are my fingers. And here's the pulse. Here are my fingers shoved all the way up my ass, about as far away from the pulse as they possibly can be. 
All right, let's next piece of trivia. We spoke about John Houston a few minutes ago. Um, on the set of African Queen, Audrey Hepburn protested um, against his and Humphrey Bogart's alcoholism by only drinking water. And it turns out everyone in the crew and cast got sick from the local water, but those two did. But those two, although, because isn't it? I thought it was in African Queen that um, that's where Audrey Hepburn got she got bitten by a bug and got malaria or like or a mosquito or whatever, and that's why, like from that point on, her voice did that. Wow, <laughs> fine. The... We're talking about oh, it was Catherine Hepburn? Did Catherine... I say Audrey Hepburn though? I think I, I said Audrey. Hepburn. I don't know. I knew. I knew. I knew what you. I knew. Yes. I'd, I'd heard that bit of trivia before, so I wasn't yeah, paying you, that you much. You just heard the Hepburn, the, the Hepburn thing, but it's yep. it's definitely Catherine Hepburn. But yes. I heard that was the movie that she gave I mean, her. She the, had this. I thought she made like she had a stroke or something, and it sounds like she got DT. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she's like her voice started wavering and became a kind of uh, caricature almost. You know. Yeah. Your turn. Uh, well, this is <laughs> this is one of my favorite bits of trivia of all time. Movie trivia. And I, I believe it, it's T-Bone Burnett was uh, the music supervisor on The Big Lebowski. Right. And uh, they wanted to use uh, Rolling Stone's um, song Dead Flowers during the, the end credits. Yep. And originally, um, Alan Klein, who's a former Rolling Stones manager, uh, said, yeah, if you want to use it, it's $150,000. And, uh, and Burnett like, please, said, please just... Come down and watch the movie. Like, uh, you know, that's too much. We can't afford it. But please come down and watch the movie. You're yep. not going to be disappointed. Yep. You'll want to give us the song. Yep. And uh, so Klein's watching the movie and it gets up to the part where the dude is like, the fucking Eagles. I hate the fucking Eagles. And Alan stands up and says, yep, all right, you got the song. You can have it for free. <laughs> and then I heard this other bit that apparently really pissed Glenn Fry off. Yeah. And... Uh, that he ran into uh, Jeff Bridges once, and Jeff Bridges is like, I don't remember what he said, but it was pretty intense, and my asshole tightened up. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's good. Um, James Woods, he fired his agent when he found out um, that the agent passed on Reservoir Dogs without telling him. Wow, you know, well, yeah, who wouldn't? I mean, I reckon that would ha- that's something that would happen all the time. That yeah. You know, on their behalf, the oh, agent, yeah. and quite often, probably for the better. Yeah, well, and but also, like, they would have gone, Well, who is this Tarantino really? Like, he's done a couple of rewrites, it's a first time film. They want him to work for scale, and James has told me, ne- You know, don't bother me with this kind of shit. And the other thing, I would get the feeling that it would probably be before Harvey Keitel came on board as a producer, because I would imagine the only role that would be fit for James Woods would be the, the Harvey Keitel character. Yeah, really. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you're right, though. Like, yeah, he was a nobody. Nobody even knew him until Pulp Fiction came along. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. There's that. I think, because uh, what was it? Danny DeVito heard about Reservoir Dogs and came to see him in the edit suite. Right. And that's and that's how, because he was one of the, he's like, okay, so we can't get involved in this one. It's done. Yeah, next but, one. Yeah, but we'd love to be involved in the next one. And that's why Danny DeVito is a producer on Pulp Fiction. And Samuel L. Jackson passed on the, the black character. You know, the, the cop that's training Tim Roth. Yeah. Yeah, that was supposed to be Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, right. That's why he was in Pulp Fiction, because he regrets passing. Passing on it. Yeah. It's like it's the, you know, Reservoir Dogs is the movie that just, he had to prove himself on Tarantino. He had yeah. no history in film other than like a couple of shorts or no he had made that feature my that, best uh, friend's yeah. wedding or whatever no whatever that was called 
Yeah. What was that called? Or Destiny Turns on the Radio? Was that it? No, no, no. That actually got made. Destiny Turns on what, the Radio. What? I think it's it's something like that. It, apparently, it is available on on YouTube. You can see it. Yes. Um, but it was, you know, it was one of those ones where done over, shot over. I think it was my best friend's weekend. wedding. It's something like that. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. There's no no one sits around singing um, Dionne Warwick or anything like that uh, in in the Tarantino version of My Best Friend's Wedding. Uh, oh, jeez. No right. one does a, say a little prayer for you. What do you got? Uh, did you know that NASA, <laughs> this is a great bit of trivia, NASA show Armageddon as part of their management training program? What? Yeah, they, uh, they show it to new managers and they have to watch the film and spot as many errors <laughs> as they can. Uh, apparently, like at least there are at least 160 wow. uh, factual uh, mistakes in. Uh, I mean, that's in really Armageddon. Good. I mean, you know, not one of them, not, and one of them isn't Steve Buscemi riding the rocket. <laughs> <laughs> they should have used um, Disney's Rocket Man. Yeah, I mean that one's a hundred percent factually accurate. What a brilliant movie too! What a classic! One, I love, is it Harlan, Harlan Harlan Williams? One of the great top ten uh, comedies of all time, in my opinion. And if you go to our YouTube channel and type in Rocket Man or just fake Shemp Rocket Man into Google, Harlan Williams did a nice little commentary for us oh, right, uh, on right. Rocket Man, and it's one of our highest viewed videos. There's thousands of hits on that one. Every week I get notifications of comments, like it's a big one. So yeah, right. he starts off with, um, you know. Hey, Australia, fake shimp. <laughs> uh, I was trying to describe him to someone the other day and um, they couldn't peg it. So I just said, you've seen Dumb and Dumber? And I just went, yeah. <laughs> you'll do what's good for you. If you're not. He's, um, he's six minute abs, right? He's like six minute abs in There's Something About Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And he's Five uh, minutes? What <laughs> the fuck are you talking about, man? <laughs> Get out the car. You're fucking fired. <laughs> He's the best friend in Freddy Got Fingered, you know? Yeah. Legend. His podcast is fantastic. Okay, so you just went. So it's your turn. All right, in the movie Swingers, the police that you hear, there's police sirens in one particular scene. They are the sirens of the real police coming to the set to shut it down because they were shooting without a permit. Wow. Yes. So Isn't they got the sound effect in and then just packed up their shit and left. You know, I heard that in the the original iteration of uh, Swingers, mm. the Vince Vaughn character is the one getting all the girls. Right. And then uh, I think Friends told John Favreau, like, you're crazy. Like, you've got two love scenes in this film and you're not in either of them? <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> How far that man has come. Yeah. Like, both. But John Favreau particularly, like, just wouldn't have expected his trajectory. I hate to say it, but um, I do follow Comedy Central UK on Instagram, and they it means I see a lot of Friends memes. Yeah. But uh, one popped up today that was when, when he gets on the show, is it, and he wants to, he's a millionaire who wants to become a UFC fighter, and it's just, it's just this huge guy beating the crap out of him, and I was very... Uh, very satisfying. You no, know, I think the best thing he's done is Chef. I just adore that. Chef is, is a great film. And the TV show that came after it's fantastic. Have you seen that? No, I haven't, no. So it's a it's almost a reality show. It's a cooking show. Right. And the guy that created all the food for the film, behind the scenes, like he's a real chef, he's on the show with John Favreau and then they invite famous celebrities to come and recreate these dishes. Right. And you've got Gwyneth Paltrow, you've got like a lot of Robert Downey Jr., a lot of the Marvel people. And the funniest one, first episode, is <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow... And he says to her, you know, she or she says a story. Someone said, you were great in this movie. And she goes, I wasn't even in it. And he looks at her and he goes, you were in it a lot. 
She's like, was I? It's like, yep, I was in it. <laughs> so she has no recollection of these Marvel movies that she's made. <laughs> but they left they that. Just, in. Well, it's probably like the Nellie Portman stuff in uh, <laughs> Thor Ragnarok. They just cut it around from other movies and were like, oh, just like there's a very um, uh, canon yes. slash uh, Roger Corman slash Al Adamson thing to do. Like, yeah. Just use that footage from this one. Makes sense. And uh, as long as we throw some money at her, I'm sure she'll be fine. Okay, we're about to throw to Adam. You got one more before we do? Uh, yes. Did you know that... So we already talked about Die Hard, and I mentioned that Die Hard was a... I think I mentioned that Die Hard... Like, right at the start of the show, right at the head of the show, I dropped in that Die Hard was actually a failed script for Commando 2. Correct. But did you know that that uh, Bruce was the seventh choice for Die Hard? Because like at, at the time, he, the only thing he'd really done was moonlighting. And I believe um, no one backed him in because he was a weedy little skinny kind of character. Yeah, they thought this guy is no way is this guy an action, an action hero. But so, Arnie, Stallone, Burt Reynolds, Harrison Ford, and Mel Gibson all knocked it back. Yeah. Before uh, Bruce Willis took it and then became one of the biggest action stars in Do the you know, world. The only one of those I can envision in that role would probably be Mel Gibson. Like I, I mean, yeah. Burt Reynolds, I certainly can't see him. By yeah. No. Or. <laughs> It just it, like but Frank I, Sinatra. Frank Sinatra was supposed to be a Frank Sinatra vehicle, but it, a lot less kind of actiony, I think for that that version. But like I can see, I can see all of them in it if it was just the action stuff, the Bonnie Bedelia stuff. The whole reason for like that's the part that I can't see. Yeah, you know them doing like I mean Stallone. It would be painful watching Arnie when Arnie tries to relate to women <laughs> in movies. <laughs> Doesn't. It, it just for me it's like it's like that scene in Jingle All the Way where he tells his wife that she's his number one customer. It's just like that's what it's like. Yep. He relates to El Paco a actually, lot more. He does. Yeah. He, <laughs> he is a pretty good. I thought he actually did a pretty good job with Sharon Stone, admittedly, in Total Recall. I thought that actually like that was a lot more believable. Is that than before the, or after he throws her across the room? <laughs> yeah, no, she she started it. <laughs> oh, dude. She did try and kill him. This is oh, I'm enjoying this. This is fun. Um, and that brings us all the way to Adam's segment. So let's see what five-star masterpiece he's dishing up this week. Hey, guys. It's Adam here from Adam's Just Seen with another Good Movie Monday recommendation. Now, we're doing trivia this episode. And uh, my little bit of trivia is about the film that I'm about to review. I wouldn't so much call it a review as a gush. I'm going to gush about this one. I had the luxury of going to see all three Lord of the Rings back to back on the weekend. I went to the Astor Theatre and I went and done it. And yes, I will admit, this is not the first time that I have done that marathon. Now, I am obsessed with Lord of the Rings, mainly the films, even more so um, than the books. And uh, like surprisingly enough, I wasn't initially. My younger brother, who has had to suffer through watching every goddamn film that's ever been made, when saw Fellowship before me. I don't know why, I just thought it was gonna be some kind of like Harry Potter-esque rip-off, not very good kind of thing. And even though I really liked The Frighteners, actually I really, really liked all of Peter Jackson's previous films, I just wasn't really that jazzed. And I remember my brother coming home and he looked me dead in the eye. And I, I, I'm always fascinated when anyone goes to movies, what they think about it. And I said, you know, how was it? And he just, 
you know, unblinkingly looked at me and he said, it is the best movie I have ever seen. So I had to go and check it out and I went and saw it the next day and then I went and saw it the day after that and I went and saw it the day after that. And so I became addicted to The Fellowship of the Ring, which is, I think, easily the best of the trilogy. Um, watching them back to back, it was very surprising to me how much the other two pictures are just battle pictures, you know, so they're kind of like war movies set in Middle Earth. And if that's what you're about, and I am about that, then they're rock and roll. But Fellowship to me has got the most romance. It's got the best subplots. It's got the coolest kind of introduction of characters. It's got amazing pacing. And I really, really like all of these little tricks that Jackson puts into the film. You know, these filmmaking things, these forced perspectives, these props, these little Easter eggs, if you will, that you're watching like, how did they quite pull that off? Um, but one of the more interesting elements of trivia that I find about this movie is that Viggo Mortensen, who is so cool here as Aragon, was not the original choice for that role. And so Stuart Townsend was uh, Aragon and even filmed, I think, about two weeks. Uh, and I was even talking to a producer about this film the other day and they were saying, yeah, that they had to change things up and that Vigo came in and never really met the director and had just talked over the phone and basically jumped into what I think is, you know, basically the most badass guy in all of fantasy cinema. But I saw the 4K restorations of Rings. Um, Rings are currently on Netflix, so you can check them out, but I highly recommend you go to the cinema and check out this 4K restoration. My one complaint that I thought I was going to have is that maybe, you know, with this much distance between these films and us now, that the effects might look a little bit hokey and it might tarnish my view of these, but honestly, it did the opposite. It really, you know, it put in crystal clear focus just how incredible Jackson's integration of digital effect and practical effects is. I mean, these movies just look and sound unbelievable. So Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring is as good as movies get beyond five stars, 10 stars out of five. Go, if you haven't seen it, my God, what are you even doing listening to this podcast? And if you haven't seen them for a few years, like I haven't, see the 4K remaster, you will not regret it. Adam Ross, ladies and gentlemen, chairman of the Australian Film Critics Association. He also co-hosts a weekly show on Ticker TV called Ticker Streaming, and he is now also on a weekly segment on Triple M Radio. Go give his Facebook page. Adam's just seen a like. Throw him some love, because if he becomes famous, we still claim him. <laughs> <laughs> that takes us into the home stretch, dude, and um, got some more prizes to give away, but let's try to bang out just a couple more pieces of trivia first. What else sure. you got there? Uh, did you know that Sean Connery wore a toupee in every single Bond film? That's incredible. Never had his, never, like, he was bald, he was bald way before, I think he was bald at, like, 18 or something <laughs> He was already. bald at birth. He was, uh, well, he probably was. losing his hair. <laughs> but considering, and even in Darby O'Gill and the Little People, considering how many fist fights he has in all of those films, the, the glue or the tape that they used must have been pretty spectacular. What's your favourite Sean Connery wig? Well, do you like the do you like the crop top like from Hunt for Red October style with the beard, or do you prefer the the rock when he's got sort of? Well, it's kind of well, it's the, the same. same. Well, before before he cuts and his hair off, like I do love and Finding Forrester, like I I do like that haircut with the like the quiff, the, 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 the yeah, the kind of the almost pompadoury type thing, <laughs> uh, with the with the white beard, like that is my favourite Connery look. But I also I really love the um, what's the what's the the Bond one where he returns to it and it's not a real Bond. Never a, say never again. Never say never again where he's got like, he's stolen Frank Sinatra's wig. <laughs> and it's like the helmet, 
the helmet of hair <laughs> and he's right. got the yep. the really uh, obvious fake tan. Like he's totally, it's like, are you just taking the piss out of Frank Sinatra in this? <laughs> I, um, I realised that I described his hair as a quiff. <laughs> that's, that's an entirely different thing. <laughs> that's a, a coif, a coif. Okay. Yeah, a quiff is a... <laughs> Well, it's a coif of a coif by any other name. Um, uh, this is kind of trivia. Beverly Hills Cop started a trend of Beverly Hills titled movies. So, at around that time, within the space of maybe two or three years, you had Beverly Hills, a troop Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills Vamp, Beverly Hills Brats, Beverly Hills Madam, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, and scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills. And, was... and a film that you mentioned last week, Beverly Hills Ninja. Well, that came about 10 years later. But yeah, but like, you know, what would Beverly Hills Ninja be, you know, if it wasn't for... If it wasn't in Beverly Hills. Like, yeah, yeah, Malibu Ninja does not have the same ring to it. Well, Jamie Kennedy went there, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I I found that interesting. Um, I do like a movie with Beverly Hills in the title. Something about it. I mean, you don't get that in Australia. You don't get, like, we've got Baronia Boys, I suppose, but... (laughs) I've always wanted to live in in uh, Beverly Hills. Not so much for Baronia. No, West of Sunshine. There's West another of, one. Death yeah. in Brunswick. Yes. Anyway, Ben, what do you got next? <laughs> I was I'm literally still trying to think of another uh, Australian movie based on a place. Well, we can do that. We could uh, we could we could fashion a whole show out of that. Out of that. <laughs> Did you know hmm. that the role of Ripley in Alien, Sigourney Weaver was technically she was the first choice, mm-hmm. but they were thinking at the time. There were two actors in, in contention, one who had done nothing before, really. That was Sigourney Weaver. Mm. The other one was Meryl Streep. Wow. But they decided not to offer it to her because literally the day before they were going to talk to her, her long-term partner died. Yep. And they're like, well, maybe it's not super appropriate to be... So that was uh, um, John Cassavetes? Not John Cassavetes. Um, I have no I don't know. Yeah, you know. Is it Cassavetes? Nick but, Cassavetes? No, no. Oh, Keith is going to kill me. You know, freaking Godfather, Deer Hunter. The other Cassavetes, Nick Cassavetes. Yeah. No, 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 no. John Cazale. I think that's his right. name. Right. Oh, yes. she was going out with John Cazale. Yeah, and he died and he she was bedside with him. With Alfredo? Yes. Alfredo. Alfredo. Yes. Well, yeah. In the Spanish version. Never go against the family. Yep. Uh, I'm glad I got there in the end. Yeah. He was fucking cocktail wedges. because it's two by two. <laughs> yeah, no, so she was um, bedside with him. Talk, you don't come to Vegas and talk to a guy like Mo Green like that. Jesus, Michael. <laughs> That's my uh, John Cazale impression. Let's just give away some stuff. Sure. Here's your chance to win a mystery pack. It's up for grabs this week. We've got a collection of prizes from several of our partners. Uh, which partners to be exact? Well, you have to win to find out. Um, be the first to email us the answer to this question. On last week's show, what was the one word that I was particularly fond of that was taboo? Do you want me to say it? No, no. I don't. No. <laughs> I'm gonna just... Do you want me to give the answer? Like, I actually, uh, it took me a second, but I was like, <laughs> I remember this one. All you have to do is send your answer to giveaways at fakeshamp.net. The second and third correct answers that are submitted will also score uh, a pass to the lunar driving. So it's pretty fucking easy. Ben, <laughs> thank you, sir. Yeah, you fucking idiot. <laughs> that was, uh, it was a, a decent amount of prep put into this show, should we say? Oh, look, I mean, like a solid eight hours when I should have been working. <laughs> <laughs> well, well done. Uh, Thanks to our mates uh, from all over the joint. You got Jarrett from Monster Fest, Guillermo from Screen Realm, Adam from AFCA, 
You've got Joe, Chad, and James from Bonehead Weekly. Muchas gracias to you for listening. Please keep doing so. Don't forget to check our midweek videos on Facebook and YouTube tomorrow and Thursday. We're going to leave you with something special. Now, this is this is particularly great. So this is Clayton Jacobson covering Johnny Cash's version of Hurt. In and of itself, that's fantastic. But listen all the way to the end because there is something very special. Maybe a cameo from Clayton's old man, Ron Jacobson. It's an absolute moment um thanks again we'll see you next week have a good one i hurt my son today to see if i still feel our focus on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole that old familiar sting try to kill it all the way but i remember everything what
you should never play that song again. What? It is so fucking depressing. I can't believe how depressed I am. Were well, you listening to those lyrics? Y yes. You didn't find that uplifting? I found it downlifting. 